HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, I'm Jimmy Carboni. And we're on the air in, in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza. We just had a great pizza. And we're with some uh, experts talking about draft beer quality. So this is a special show. I think we're like at number 448. And um, I'm really happy with the, with the crew that's in the studio. Guys, introduce yourselves, and I want to say a few things about each of you. Uh, Hi, my name is Anthony Malone. I am the partner of Swift Hibernia Lounge and Underdog, and also a director of operations at Pierre Harbor House. So we're going to be talking about... Uh, Beer quality in general, draft beer quality. But Anthony, you've really uh, been part of a group that represents, you know, you guys started as a, as a simple Irish pub, a lot of draft lines. You guys have opened quite a few notable places, and you also have, like, the best bar in the world, Dead Rabbit, and you've got this great operation, period, downtown. So, I mean, what, what do you think quality means to you guys? I mean, you seem to always pull it off, and you've got hospitality quality on your draft lines. You've got Guinness lines in there. Well, for us... You know, quality really starts with 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 Guinness. Really, in Irish pubs, it's a it's a no brainer, and it's a it's a beer that, you know, you, if you if you do it well, it can give you a reputation for delivering quality. So, you know, starting at that point, starting at the point where we ensure the best possible pour of Guinness, uh, and treat the product in a way that it needs to be treated, and taking that care and attention out to all of our other products too. So that's something that you think that people that are enthusiasts of Irish bars and, and Guinness in general, they're looking for that perfect pint. I think people not are, not, are not just looking for a perfect pint. And at this age, they demand a well-poured beer. I don't think anything less is, is acceptable to the public anymore. And great. And Chris... Uh, Introduce yourself, because you're the reason we have the theme today. Indeed, yeah, I guess. Uh, I'm Chris McClellan. I work as a senior ambassador for the Guinness Brewery, actually. Uh, and I also uh, run a beer website called The Brew Enthusiast. And yeah, I did uh, 
write a, a kind of a ranty beer article uh, a few months ago here. So on, what I like about what you quality, do is you, so. you've got your hand in different things in the industry. You mm-hmm. also took the advanced Cicerone test. But you, every week or so, you put out a, a, a email that says the 10 best articles in beer. Mm-hmm. And I, I read it. I'll usually skim it and, and I read a couple. But the, the one that jumped out at me was this article about beer quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, to Anthony's point, I think that there's a lot of ways that you can kind of crack in, you know, crack into that problem. Um, but from a retail standpoint, if you work in the beer business, if you see the effects of a good pint of Guinness or a good pint of beer um, for the consumer and you look at the long-term effects on your business, um, it's a huge opportunity. It's a huge challenge we have right now in the business. It's something that I wish more people would focus on, and that's really where it came from. And and you could kind of talk about that for hours, the, you know, the different aspects of, of what goes into the, the discussion around quality. But at the end of the day, that's really where that came from. And our other guests, who's, we're very happy to have you on. Hi there. I'm Angela Style. I'm the new manager of education over at Murray's Cheese. And you're also, you're an advanced Cicerone. We've that's had you true. on before. Yeah. And you just took a special test Ooh, last week. Master Cicerone exam was last week. That's right. Two days long. It was, uh, it was a bear. That's for sure. It's great. So you guys all have had, had your hands in, you know, higher level things. And, you know, you, number one, you guys know about quality. So we'll have our general conversation. I mean, one thing we're talking about, first of all, um, just styles in, in general. I know styles come up. Um, tr- being true to style. I mean, are, are those other things that you're looking for when, when you're talking about quality, Chris? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think that the American beer market in 2018, we have 7,000 breweries now. We have more um, creativity than ever before. We make the best beer in the world, I think, in the United States at this point. I think I can confidently say that. And so um, I'm not necessarily a stickler to styles. I think that there's a lot of breweries that have built a name on being innovative, right? Dogfish and, and some of the other larger regional breweries come to mind immediately. But at the end of the day, a really, really well-made Pilsner, a really, really well-made bitter, something that really speaks to you know a lot of history, a lot of process that has gone into sort of dialing that in. Um, I, I think there's something special about that for sure. And I was thinking we're, we're drinking a half acre from Chicago, uh, the Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. So what did you guys think of that style? Was were, were, Angela, I think you talked about you had a, your, your favorite Oktoberfest recently. Um, oh, it's hard to say the favorite, honestly. I Well, I will say the favorites for me have been the ones um, coming from Be United that were cast condition. Um, so that's always such a treat. Um, because you hardly ever get to have real yeah, cast condition hail. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's been really, really nice to have around town lately. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of people don't know, too, that um, actually what the Oktoberfest beer uh, is over in Germany is very, very different from what we're drinking over here now. This style of beer is not necessarily um, what uh, people at Oktoberfest are drinking now, which is usually like a Helles style. Um, so that's kind of like the fun thing about Oktoberfest and the history of that beer style itself is because it's changed and evolved so much. But this particular version of it, man, we Americans have just glommed on to for good reason because it's absolutely delicious, um, which is this kind of Mertzen style of beer, um, which is uh, a little bit more, it's just a little bit more malt heavy and, and, um, and just, yeah, super so you, you said that you had just tried Oktoberfest that you really liked. Uh, this year, Brooklyn uh, on oh, draft was just that. amazing. Um, just and for the reasons that you know I think people love lagers it's just super clean and crisp and Moorish and, and so well balanced so well made Moorish is not used enough by the way that, do you I know love that term? that term do you know that term what's Moorish it literally yeah, means you, you want more of you, it yeah. Moorish means you want more yeah. so I learned Moorish. this term in Ireland it's a fantastic term yeah. I don't know if yeah. it's an Irish term Guinness had a tagline yeah. Chris I'll let you uh, tell that one yeah, yeah but so so the term Moorish is more dash I-S-H Moorish <laughs> 
And it's just this idea that you have something and you immediately, there's no other word for it, I don't think, Mm-mm. that I can think of. Oh, like, I can think of. But you have something, and it doesn't necessarily need to describe beer, but it's so perfect for a lot of beer styles, um, including Guinness is, is an, a classic example. They use that in their marketing back in the uh, in the early 20th century. So but it's not the influence of the Moors on Spain. No. <laughs> the sweet caramelization. It's, it's not M-O-O-R. No, but it's like yeah. the idea that you have something and you instantly want more of whatever it is that you're having. Right? Michael Jackson, who was a famous beer writer in the beer industry, a lot of us are very familiar with his work. He tended to use it a lot, and that's where I first picked up that word myself, and it's uh, it's very helpful in describing a lot of beers. So Moorish is the opposite of the eh beer. It's not, it, yeah. it's the <laughs> Go back to your article. Let's get, you said that on well, our friend uh, Jeff Alworth, who's Bravana, who's been on the show a lot, he just said basically it's, it's uh, you know, there's nothing like having a bad beer and people sometimes you want that word the eh beer like that's eh i mean that where do you want to go with that and this and i'd love to hear anthony's perspective on this just because i because there's I'm more old. there's the more ish and then there's the eh. <laughs> exactly uh and and so the the idea is this really gets to the crux of what we're talking about right because beer is a business and as beer as, as you work in the business it becomes a little bit more obvious but the idea being that um, when you have a mediocre experience, it really doesn't matter what we're talking about, right? It could, you could be referring to beer, you could be referring to anything, but a mediocre experience is something that makes you go, eh, right? You go, yeah, you know, you don't have a lot bad or good to say about it. And the problem is, is that in the beer world, when you have a beer that makes you go, eh, right? That's just the no-go zone for beer, right? If it's horrible, you're going to tell everybody about it, you know? If it's really, really good, you're going to tell everybody about it. But when you exist in that middle kind of, Eh, zone. So how do you guys, like, like a Cicerone training or other training, you know, it's one thing you're looking for flaws. You know, you're looking for certain things. What, like diacetyl? What are some other things you look for when you're looking for flaws, Angela? Oof, that's a, that's a big one. Um, do you mean, is there a particular kind of, like, realm that you're looking for? Like the actual construction of the beer from the brewery or how it's mistreated, perhaps, when it gets to the glass? Because I think there's two big topics essentially there that you could talk about could be a combination of both uh could be neither it could be one or the other but um it just kind of depends on which side um because you can look at flaws mm -hmm. in one hand but then you can also there's that eh which which isn't necessarily flawed but it just might not be that great and just to elaborate on that really quickly the idea would be that you know when you are when a customer has an eh experience right whether when they're at your your pub when they're at your bar um, when they're at your brewery and they go, yeah, yeah, that was solid. H- how was the beer? It was solid, right? That's a that's I'm not going to tell my friends. That's I'm not I'm definitely not going to have another pint, which is the main takeaway there, right? And so in terms of draft quality, that's the thing we want to avoid, and it's an avoidable thing, right? Because for the most part, most of the beer that you're getting sent to your bar, to your restaurant, to wherever it is that you're serving, um, you know, brew, you know, breweries aside for a second, um, most of that beer is actually going to be pretty solid, right? Most of that beer is not going to have the brewing-related off flavors that Angela was mentioning, right? It's going to be pretty dialed in. Now, if you're sending bad beer out of your brewery, I think that's a that's an entirely new conversation to have, right? If you don't like the style, that's one thing. But when you go to have a pint and the pint is kind of just mediocre, right? A consumer might ha- might not have the vocabulary for it, right? They might not be able to say, you know, there's a lot of sulfitic compounds in this, right? Like we might be able to do, but they will go, mm, you know what? I'm not feeling it. And they're going to walk away. And the problem is, is they won't order another one. 
and they will never say anything about it. They just won't order it. Um, and that's kind of a lot of problems, too, where if you have, uh, we were talking about even before the show here, is um, bar restaurant owners, if they if they are not aware themselves of the um, the the knowledge and the science behind what is going on with their beer and their draft systems in particular, um, you know, you can end up having poor beer, unfortunately, and your guests aren't going to tell you because, I mean, who is, you know, flagging down the owner and actually telling them they just leave and, and don't buy anything else. Uh, so it's it's a lot of money going down the drain where there's a lot of, could be potential. Anthony, Moorish. <laughs> <laughs> from, a, from a retailer perspective, um, you know, there's two parts of it. Obviously, there'll be the part where we all, as, as beer people, would agree that a beer leaving a brewery is, is not good. And then there's the part whereby us as retailers aren't doing our job and people like Chris and Angela would critique how we store and dispense our beer. Um, so they're two separate problems. Um, you know, with, um, it, it's, it's funny when, with, with how most beer bars are and having rotational taps and a lot of times you're buying kegs of beer that you haven't tasted before, they're one-offs, they're, they're rotations. Um, you really have to rely on the reputation of the brewery to deliver a quality product. Um, and then keep on tasting the beer that they're sending and make sure they're still doing their job. Um, and when it comes to more mainstream beers, or when I say mainstream, I mean more established and um, globally known beers um, that have an established quality, it's really about tasting those frequently to verify that we're doing our job in terms of clean lines, and temperature serving, and clean glassware, and all the rest of it. So all flavors have two two sources mm-hmm. indeed. indeed yeah, yeah i think even like the idea of everyone immediately jumps to the <coughs> phrase off flavors um but that's what's so complicated and also really fun and interesting about beer is like so you mentioned earlier diacetyl that's usually like the first big one that people talk about in beer industry <clears throat> um and the interesting part about diacetyl is that there's certain beer styles where a little bit of diacetyl is great it's part of the style and it's natural and it's supposed to be there but there are other styles where you're like Oof, oh wow that's uh, it's quite buttery. That's pretty bad. Um, so that's kind of the other multifaceted part about talking about quality of beer or flavors or off flavors, if you will, because it's not clear cut all the time. There's a lot of there, there's a lot more that goes into it than just like this flavor is bad. This one's not bad um, because it could be desirable or could not be. Is there, is there a science behind uh, you know the ad beer? You know, is there a science behind a great beer? as opposed to just an average beer. So let's, let's, let's assume technically they're perfect. So I think that the, um, the going back to Jeff Allworth for a second, so Jeff is one of my favorite writers in the world, and he has... Mine too, I love that. Yeah, guy. he has unbelievable things to say, and, and um, he, he has a great line in his book, The Beer Bible, where he says, you know, all bad beer is the same, right? Like, And, and so it, it, it's kind of a funny line, but it's actually pretty brilliant when you think about it, because when you're looking at technical technically good brewing right the way that you make the beer so that it turns out and it's from a technical standpoint right your your dissolved oxygen content is where it wants to be and your you know your attenuation levels are where you want to be and all the other things that go into brewing good beer um we are you know very much attuned to those things i think the modern beer drinker is very much attuned to drinking something that is technically good you know i think there's a lot of people and and like i said most people don't have the ability or the vernacular to put a definition to it right so they're not saying you know hey this tastes like it's got a really really nice you know iso alpha acid whatever you know level but what they are able to do is really lock into something that is appealing to them and the the dialogue or today, memory yeah exactly so it brings you to a certain time and place and the dialogue today is such that 
um, there is a, a, a noticeably higher bar. You know, as you get more and more breweries, you, you will see some bad beer, right? I mean, it's just look at the stats, right? With 7,000 breweries out there, that's going to happen a lot. But um, when you do have a bad beer, you kind of know it. You know, you kind of you can kind of just lock in and say, "This isn't really my uh, this isn't really my bag." You know. Cool guys. Cheers to you guys. Thanks cheers. for coming out. Yeah. So, what? Tell me some other things that the important aspects of quality control. You know, from mm. once the time the keg gets into your your pub, uh, what are things that you're looking for? Troubleshooting. Yeah. Well, I think we're all immediately thinking about draft spent systems that come to mind. Um, or, or do you mean the content of the beer specifically itself or outside oh, You that? guys tell me. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but draft systems always come to mind. Um, and honestly, if I had my way with it, uh, I would also want to have the various grading lettering uh, system outside of bars uh, that they do for their kitchens and their food um, to also display, I think, what you know the quality of their draft systems look like because how are you supposed to know as a consumer um, there's no next to no information for you out there, and so many people so what, have no idea. What should we know about the draft system that would get me an A? Uh, if well, you had an a. so that's a. I mean, that's a big conversation, but as a whole, kind of like as a as a general synopsis. Yeah, as a general synopsis. Draft a rabbit hole. <laughs> there, yeah, it really, it really is, and it's scary because it's a bunch of weird tubes and equipment and stuff, and like you talk with bartenders and servers, like I'm not touching that. It's it's scary when you first approach it. There's there's gases and everything else. Like it can be dangerous in some aspects too if you're really not careful. Um, not to be but dramatic, but it is like, what it is. Even for example, like when you, when you tap in the keg, mm-hmm. different kegs have different <coughs> connectors. Yeah, right? different couplers. Like you're sitting there looking at it as a new bartender. Like what the what? Um, so the systems themselves, I think, kind of tend to scare people off. Uh, but at the end of the day, these systems need to be paid attention to more than anything because it doesn't matter what kind of great beer you have um if they're going through lines that are of poor quality those lines get the final say on your product um and so cleaning your lines with recirculation method every two weeks i know this sounds maybe like gibberish right now but doing things that actually literally scrape the grub and bacteria and all this stuff out of your lines consistently over and over again every two weeks is going to be one of the great ways to help maintain these systems that you dispense beer out of. And, and I think that this also goes to a much larger conversation mm. because in the beer business, um, we're looking at a decline in on-premise consumption, right? And it's because younger people aren't going out to the pub and the bar like maybe we used to, you know, 10 years ago. I don't know. There could be a million different reasons for that, you know? Um, and so... When we look at ways to grow the pie, the conversation... That's a big statistic. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. And, and so when we look at ways to grow the pie, we're always saying to ourselves, the on-premise is such a critical brand driver, right? It's, it's, it's where people sample. It's where they have conversations about this kind of stuff, right? So let's make sure... So the tap handle. Yeah. Let's make sure that the experience is good. And so the way I look at it is I say, this is low-hanging fruit, right? This is something that we can actually control. That's a, that's a part of the experience that we can actually look at. And we can say we can make sure that that part of the experience is as good as it should be so that when they do have that beer, when they do have that conversation, when they are in that bar, right, drinking that beer through those draft lines, um, they are having the best experience they can have. Right. And that's step one. Right. So when we look at the way to grow the pie, when we look at, you know, I read blogs every day, I read the industry articles every day that say, you know, it's it's so tough to sell beer these days. And it is really tough to sell beer. But I think that's where that comes from. But, you know, Anthony, (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
it is tough to sell beer, and we noticed that you know our our product mix is leaning more towards spirits mm. uh, naturally. Um, but in one way, I don't think it diminishes uh, the importance of what we're talking about and the you know how how critical it is not to phone any part of your program in. You know, if oh we're selling mostly cocktails now, let's forget about beer, or we sell mostly beer, let's forget about wine and cocktails. You have to really pay attention to every aspect of what you're doing because it's that, that one person in the group who gets that bad product who will There's an old story and it's not that old. It would be the place, if you walked into a bar that had a number of taps and there was a Bud Light line <coughs> that you shouldn't buy any of the other drafts because it meant that the Bud Light was the only line that was being moved and probably the only line that was being cleaned. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, it depends on the laws per state because sometimes depending on the laws in various states, um, you could have, say, for instance, that that bud line. um, Yeah, that rep could be coming in and just clean that line. So it also depends on who's responsible for line cleaning. If it is supposed to be from the brewery, like maybe they're just coming in cleaning those couple of lines and then everything else is neglected. Um, so there's there's a lot that the consumer doesn't know. And and the takeaway there for what Angela said earlier too is that you know you don't I don't know Anthony how many people you get coming up to you if they know you and saying hey this this isn't very good mm-hmm. right like how many how many people you know who are your friends who are people in the industry and they have you know they order a classically amazing beer that would be fantastic at a place like Swift like a Pilsner or a Keller or something like that and they say not not very good. Right, this isn't really working for me. It never right? happens, like, to it, Anthony. It doesn't. But the thing is, is, hopefully, it never yeah. happens. But how often that actually happens, right? Is is the is uh, you know I'm just not feeling it, right? And they probably walk away. I don't know how many times you have that conversation with customers, or how many times your bartenders do if you hear about that. Like typically, it's people who, you know, for if they have a, and it's frequently about Guinness because that's the the beer that, you know, those nuances just change the whole experience. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, Maybe it's slightly too cold. Maybe, you know, something is slightly off. Maybe it's the last very end of a keg, or again, the walk-in box decided to get a little colder that day because of external factors. You know, yeah. typically it's it's along the lines of that nuance that it's not quite what I I'm used to. And then, you know, it's good when people are vocal that way. It gets you. And what do you guys do? Like, you have, you know, between Swift and the other places, how do you guys maintain your draft system? And, and what do you look for when you, when you set up a system? I mean, you guys cobble it together, or do you buy something? Is there a certain standard you have for your draft systems? Um, well, it depends on the place. You know, in um, in Swift and Underdog, we uh, have Kilkenny systems, which is a, a water bath chilling system, which is great. It's an amazing system it's from Ireland. It's been around for years. It's not popular anymore, but we really like using it. Um, allows us to really control temperatures of beer. Um, which is important. Mm. Um, <clears throat> which is like probably 90% of draft, 95% of draft issues. <laughs> so many. Is it's like, uh, yeah, you're at 48 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. That's that's your problem. So is this running cold water around the lines uh, constantly? A, a Kilkenny system is basically a large kind of water bath the size of like a dining room table. And the uh, coils go into the, the chill water and of varying lengths. And then that same chill water is pumped through the beer python which is the name for the hose that keeps all the individual beer lines in there um, and you can bypass the water chamber if you want to keep a certain temperature or you can have a shorter run uh, for certain beers longer run for for different beers so it gets gives you an opportunity to affect the temperature of the beer in a way that you want to deliberately um, 
And I think I mean, it was developed for the European market where they don't actually use cold boxes for beer. They let beer sit out in temperate um, kind of areas and then the canning machine does the work of chilling the beer. Wow. What's, what's the fancy system that's um, it's from... Uh, it was at Torst and... Uh, it's uh, got... <laughs> Turst actually uses my, one of my absolute favorite draft companies I've ever had the pleasure of working with. I, I'm not ashamed to even plug them at all. I absolutely love their work, but Draft Choice. I'm sure you guys have seen their stuff. It's like oh here in New York. Oh my god, yeah, it's like yeah. it's like they draft porn. It's yep. beautiful stuff. I mean, the, the pictures are gorgeous. Flux capacity. Is that Anton? Yeah. That's yes. Anton. Yep. It's yeah. Anton Love. That whole group. Like man, they. Honestly, that's what I always look at. As a former, so I'm a former draft technician who used to install and clean draft dispense systems in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and in Chicago. And so coming back here to New York, I'm always on the prowl for you know the the best spot to drink clean, good, and not only beer but wine and liquor on draft. That's also a huge thing now. So you can't even that's not taken out of the equation. It's everything on draft now. Um, and what I do is I look out for companies that I trust, like a draft choice sticker sitting on the bar, because that signals to me. Hey, these guys know what they're doing. These lines have been cleaned properly. And going back to Guinness too for a second, there's actually, Who? Um, yeah, that small brewery <laughs> out of Ireland. We're gonna make it Never someday heard of that. here. Weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's whenever when we talk to our entire supply chain, right? So we talk to our distributors, we talk to our retailers, um, and obviously, you know, our, our our consumers who are the really the the big fans out there. Um, there's more myths, there's more legends, there's more ridiculous stories um, and really fun stories around Guinness than I would argue any other brewery in the world, you know, in terms of just the, the sheer amount of, the, of uh, you know, pride people have in the fact that they're a Guinness drinker and the fact that their family is Irish, the fact that um, they've got some great story to share with you about some, you know, some, some pub that they went to. And um, all of these things, um, I, I think because I work for Guinness, because I have this conversation literally every day you know um there is a there's a fondness not only obviously for the product but also just for the fact that we've been pushing that message for so long and the reason that it's worked for so long the reason that guinness has worked for so long the reason that it is so popular is because of that quality story you know the 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 whole supply chain the beer itself being a very high quality product and then also the fact that um retailers use that as the benchmark for how good of a pint they pour, you know. This is after a great start, guys. We're back in a few minutes. We'll take a short break on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. 100 Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to 12-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. Hey, hey. 
Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we're talking about beer quality. It's it's a it's a very big topic, and it, it means why your the beer in your glass is good, and why you're having a good time at a bar. You're not getting an, a flawed beer, but you're not getting an ant beer as well. Um, our buddy Ben Keen tweeted today. He said, "You guys are doing a quality." Quality beer show. Uh, you should do one every, every night for a month because it seems to be a big topic to people in um, the industry. Yes. So you guys, you know, especially Angela and Anthony, give me the spiel. You know, quality, draft quality, quality of what's in your glass, systems behind it. You should, you're both experts. So um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a big topic, um, but at the end of the day, essentially what we have are these incredible systems um, that are built to dispense your beer the way that the brewer intended. And unfortunately, um, if you do not have the right uh, knowledge in your arsenal, if you will, um, it's very hard to maintain and therefore make more money off of these beer systems um, as an owner or you know uh, draft dispense system owner. Um, because uh, there's a lot of factors working against you because beer is a very finicky product. It wants to be at a certain temperature. It has carbonation that you're dealing with all the time, and it also is almost essentially a living product. So you have bacteria and all these other things that are building up constantly. So we have to consistently fight against these factors in order to properly maintain the beer simply just to allow the beer to be displayed as the brewer intended. That's our end goal. Um, and to also dispense it in a way where you know the system's working properly so that um, it makes it much easier for the servers and bartenders to do their job. Uh, and so that's what a lot of this is, is about on the draft side, is just ensuring um, all of those aspects of it. And what we can do is just learn more about how to do it. Uh, and that's why we're here today, to try and uh, give you some knowledge on it. Anthony? I think, you know, from a retail point of view and, and what we what we do, especially at, at Swift, is is not just, you know, keep, manage a good beer system or pour a clean beer. We really, what we're really trying to achieve is to recreate the experience of having a certain beer in a certain place. So if it, if it's Guinness, we're, we're trying to recreate the experience of having a pen of Guinness in Dublin. And there's other environmental factors that go into that, you know, the service, the music, the environment. Um, but the beer qualities is is really important to that. Um, similarly with Pilsner Raquel, which is another great example of another great classic world beer epitome of the style and an organization that cares deeply about dispensing beer and the quality of the liquid, not just when it leaves the brewery, but when it actually gets into a glass in a bar. Um, <clears throat> we're trying there to, to, again, to recreate the experience of a pint of Pilsner um, in Pilsen. Uh, and I think you know, there's the, the so much sort of work and love and history and culture that goes into these beers and these products that I don't think that anything less should be should be sort of wished for the product. You should really try and approximate the experience of having this beer at the source wherever it goes in the world. And, you know, given the technology out there and the, the freshness of the beer as it, as it arrives to us, somewhere we're getting beer literally, you know, five to six weeks out of the brewery. So we're getting beer as fresh as the countries that it's brewed in. Um, it's very possible to, you know, if, if all things come together, to, to recreate that experience. Yeah. Anthony, um, just tell us more about you. I know you're from Ireland. Tell us how you started working in, in bars and pubs. Uh, well, it's going back now to the black and white days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like I fell into it kind of by accident. I, I had started off working in, in kitchens and um, was in England looking for work and um, a bar job was going and I lied and said I had experience and that was when I was 17 years old, and the rest That's of history. how we all get into the industry, That's it. right? That's it. <laughs> fake it, fake it, so you make it. Yeah. yeah. So it was, uh, you know, I kind of fell in love with it. So when you came to the states, 
Were you already what, what level were you at? You were a bartender? Were you ready to be a manager? Bartender um, with kind of a, a, a deep love for you know for food and beverage and hospitality and, and something that uh, I wanted to pursue uh, a vocation in for the rest of my life. Um, and ended up you know meeting up with my now partners Danny and Mike in, in Swift and um, I've been very lucky. So when, uh, when you worked in England, I mean, were you dispensing draft beer? And what, what were your jobs? Did you actually have to go and tap kegs? or? Um, yeah, no, we, we did tap kegs, and it was, it was an Irish pub in, in Oxford, and, you know, Guinness was important there, too. Um, started learning about temperature and started learning, learning about lying cleanliness then. And um, we also had cask ale, obviously, mm. most English pubs do. So um, learned a little about that. Um, and I w- was always interested in cask ale as a, as a format. Um, but it started there. And Angela, tell us how you got started. You, you said you worked with draft dispense systems. How it started in beer, started in draft. You can, up to you. Well, actually, both of those kind of started around the same time. Um, I was learning more and more about the Cicerone program, and I came across the draft beer quality manual. I'm like, what on earth am I reading? This makes no sense. So what I did is like, all right, I got to figure this out. So I actually went uh, for my first time to a Micromatic Advanced Draft System course. And it blew my mind and busted it wide open for me. Like, what? This this needs to be the conversation, um, which I firmly believed ever since then, like, is at the forefront of my mind at all times is draft dispense techniques and quality. Um, because as much as we always talk about improvement of the beer industry as a whole, this is the one area I know has been left behind over and over and over again um, and needs to be addressed far, far more uh, because it's so incredible. You know, incredibly important, um, and it's also a very viable source of jobs for the industry of draft dispense technicians and everything. Um, but in my journey of going, starting with Cicerone, like that's why I like Cicerone too, because I never would have found draft otherwise. I mean, why else would I, you know, dive into that side? No one else really does, um, and that pushed me to go into that arena. So from there, it just kind of spun off, and I've done a bunch of different things in the industry, primarily working as like beverage director, things like that, but. Now I found my awesome home with Murray's Cheese as her manager of education, which means that I literally get to eat and drink my way through life and talk about the wonderful ways in which to pair them together and geek out and provide educational resources and classes for the public. And that's really exciting. Oh, but you yeah. guys, there's a lot of wine classes as well there. There is. But they also brought me on specifically to essentially stick my flag in the sand and be like, hey, you know, we're here and ready to offer more and more um, uh, beer-focused opportunities. So this is my bat signal. I guess, if you will, to the whole beer industry. Like, I'm there. I'm ready. I am so ready. Let's dive in. Whatever subjects are of interest. I have two classrooms to utilize. I have all this cheese at my disposal. Like, let's get nerdy. Um, And one of my goals, actually, is to eventually have uh, a class or course to showcase these exact characteristics, flavors or um, off flavors or otherwise, um, in that class and start teaching the public to kind of that next level of beer knowledge of this is, um, you know, going deeper into what could result in your beer. And um, there's just a lot of opportunity to go in pretty much any direction you want. Anthony, earlier you mentioned Master Sommelier. I mean, you're, you're, you're part of, a, you know, you're not, there's the advanced Cicerone and Cicerone people. We've had a number of shows with them, but you go back to things like the Good Beer Seal for independent craft beer bars. And I know with, with uh, Dead Rabbit, you guys are in that, with the top beer top bars in the world you've brought that sure. up and you mentioned Ma- master sommelier earlier i mean are there any accreditations that that you look look to or, or you aspire to with yourself and your bars 
Um, not really. Our kind of validation comes from our guests. I mean, that's that's kind of at the core Ooh, of uh, at yeah. the core of our sort of hospitality yeah. philosophy. Um, I, it's uh, the courses and uh, the Cicero course in particular is, has uh, I think made a huge impact on on the industry. Um, shamed to say I haven't tried it myself, um, but I I sort of understand the the importance of it and you don't need it but it is very helpful for people who are looking to maybe branch off into other parts of the industry they may not otherwise would have paid attention to it's and i mean it's just like any college degree too it depends on what you do with it right like it's any certification or degree you know you gotta gotta use it yeah no i i, I would totally agree and you know it's never too late you can get in whenever you want Happy to with all my spare time. I was gonna say happy to <laughs> happy to uh, you know if I have to swing by Swift for a couple pints and talk about it, we'll have to do that oh, at some darn. point. But um, I I, he, should, he could probably ace half of it already. No, he? I'm sure he'd do great. It's yeah. it's it's kind of scientific too. I mean, there's a lot of I mean, I've I've looked at the level one and two. I've looked at the course books and passed yeah. over them. Went this is stuff that you have to actually learn. Yeah, it's not all intuitive or. But you joked earlier about you said that you, you, these guys were going to have a conversation using what just scientific terms. Or, I'll, what, I'll, what? Yeah, I'll talk about you know that's the <laughs> the old country. And, I already and, took my and, test last week. I'm done. So I, I was telling you earlier, Jimmy, too. I, I we had a chance to talk to, or I had a chance to talk to Neil Witte. Um, Tell us who Neil Witte is. So Neil Witte is, is the Brewers Association's quality ambassador. Um, Neil is somebody who actually helped author the current draft quality manual, um, which is kind of the Bible for um, draft beer and um, something that as you're studying for Cicerone, you have to know um, completely, um, basically have to memorize the entire thing by heart just to be able to um, recall different, different sections of it uh, for different parts of the exam. But it is incredibly helpful to give you just an overall per, you know, perspective on the ecosystem of what draft actually is, the definition. But Neil helped author that. Neil was also, uh, I believe he proctored your Master Cicerone exam as well. Oh, yes. I saw Neil last week in my exam. <laughs> yes. So, um, but, <laughs> uh, he, but he's, he's, a known, he's a known figure. Oh, yeah. I mean, so actually, he, he's been working with the old draft company I used to work for in Chicago, which is Leaders Beverage Consulting. Um, so I've known Neil because of that um, relationship over there in Chicago. Um, I mean, he's absolutely fantastic really really knows the stuff um so it wasn't intimidating at all having to do draft knowledge in front of him last week um yeah. but uh yeah he's he's one of the major players in the industry and finally like a big name too known on the draft side and looking and having a conversation with him and just kind of hearing his his experience more importantly about mm-hmm. um you know the 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 way that the the tactics that they've used right the things that they've tried to do over the last 25 years to make draft quality, to make beer quality sort of that Zagat sticker in the window, you know, to make that kind of a, you know, you walk in and you say, hey, this place is a place that cares. This is a place I want to patronize. There could be an industry. We said for a while we had the Good Beer Seal in New York City for certain bars. We don't, so we don't really want a government agency to step in, but we would like to have maybe an industry standard that's put in your window if you're i see i love that idea because it's so incredibly hard again what i mentioned earlier of all these different laws um and who is actually um you know who's actually making that happen who's actually holding anyone accountable um and uh at the end of the day of course the government isn't getting involved it doesn't you know it doesn't make you sick and it doesn't kill you so why get in, you know honestly at the end of the day that's what they're about so because of those factors, um, they don't need to. So it's, it's up quality, to us as consumers, standard. I think. Even. Like in England, there's the cast mark, which is pre- it's pretty big. I think there's thousands of pubs that aspire to get that. Mm. But it's more about the, the cask beers. I, I, I like Anthony's line, too. And one of the reasons that I, I really admire the way that, that they do business at, at Swift <laughs> and Dead Rabbit, too, is that 
um, let the customer kind of decide, you know, let the customer say, where, where should I spend my money? You know, um, you know, as consumers get more savvy to the idea of what goes into a quality pint, all of the fa- all of the factors, you know, from the throughout. You know, the what really chain. works for me when I walk into Swift, and the bartenders know my name exactly. You know, <laughs> and that's and everything tastes better. Anthony. And that's part that's part of the experience. You know, Jimmy, <laughs> and and so Jimmy, I, what can I get for you? <laughs> That's the uh, recreating the experience of having a pint in Dublin part too. And I'll say, hey, Robbie. That's the way to do it. But I, but I think it just goes, it, it kind of speaks. Is that to, pint to on the Anthony need, today? Need for that kind of thing. <laughs> well, the consumer should be running this show. At the end of the day, like we can, we've been talking about this issue for years as beer industry people. But the people at the end of the day who really need to demand the betterment of, it needs to be the consumers. They need to be taught and shown this is what it can look like and taste like. Um, when, you know, it's not of great quality. And at the end of the day, too, if you're a customer walking into a restaurant and someone serves you your meal on a really disgusting, dirty plate, you'd send it back. And just because they don't know what's on the other side of the wall doesn't mean um, they they shouldn't be informed or aware of the fact, like, oh, wait, I just paid for that? Like, this is a great beer. Why this? But they don't understand what it really came out of. So I think it honestly has to be consumers at the end of the day who really make this change for us. And, and Neil actually had a lot of these programs in place a, a while ago that he, he was telling me about anecdotally. And, and I apologize if I'm butchering his story here. But essentially what he said is they've tried various consumer-facing programs. Um, hard to implement, but more importantly, it's yeah. hard to not show bias, right? Because the BA would... <laughs> show bias toward a certain subset of, of breweries and, and constituents in the beer yeah, industry. Yeah, that's difficult. Um, and so the opportunity to build on that, to build a kind of better rapport around that, even if it's nothing official, um, is going to be a huge boon to all of us because I want to go to a place, I want to have a great experience, I want the bartender to know my name, you know, I want them to smile and say, how are you, and talk to me about things that are happening in my life. I think that's the best part about going to the pub. But I also want to be able to have a great product consistently, and that really just kind of ties into this entire discussion a little bit, too. That's why I like, again, I mentioned that draft company earlier. They have a sticker out. Like, that's just an indicator to me as a consumer. If I see that sticker, I therefore know I trust those guys. This beer is going to be great. Um, So maybe there's little indications or indicators like that that could be used. But, I mean, all these ideas have been floating around for a while. It's just a matter of something sticking and I don't know what that formula is yet. I, I just, I don't know. And, and it does speak to the bottom line. You know, at the end of the day, it will still speak to the bottom line. Mm. You know, the places that, you know. Water water finds its own level. Yeah, you know, I mean, exactly. Places that don't take care of their draft system and pour bad beer. You'll get away with it for a while, but eventually you'll see the attrition in your customer base. And places that do really focus on pouring a great product. It's it's not a, something that's very dramatic or proactive. It's very It's kind of passive. Um, and people's reaction is kind of passive, but they'll have that second pint or that third pint, um, and they'll just feel better in your bar, you know. And some for a lot of people, it's um, you know it's very discernible. Like that doesn't taste good. I know why it doesn't taste good. For other people, it's it's such a a, a small difference between a pint in one pub or another um, that they're almost unaware that they're just having a better time because the beer is just that much that bit better than elsewhere. I will say, though, there are some very tangible characteristics that, as a consumer, we can hopefully help educate them on. Um, so, for instance, we again, we talked about that diacetyl earlier. It's a, literally a buttery smell and flavor, and it's it's a, what we call a slicker mouthfeel, or just feels slicker in the mouth. 
But the other part of it, too, is that um, diacetyl can also sometimes give people a headache. So I've had so many people coming to tell me, like, oh, I never go to that bar. I don't drink draft beer there. I get a headache. I'm like, oof, well, I know why. So that's something else that they can look out for, perhaps, um, or something that tastes sour when it shouldn't. Um, so there are a few things to at least help guide the consumer in the right direction. I never get a headache when I drink. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, I should I better. should preface that with there are two different kinds of headaches there. <laughs> One of them. So the most famous, I'll tell a quick anecdote about Guinness yeah. here because it's perfectly appropriate to that, which is that um, back in the 1920s, um, Guinness decided to advertise for the first time. So for the first 170-ish years that Guinness was a brewery, was a company, um, we never advertised our products ever. There was never an advertisement. You never saw an advertisement in a paper, nothing. They became the largest brewery in the world by not advertising, and they did that through quality beer, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone knew they got Guinness. Guinness stood for quality, right? I'll have a Guinness, right? And globally, that, that's how Guinness expanded its trade around the world. Um, but moving into the 1920s and 1930s, there was actually um, the Guinness family decided to actually you know, undergo their first bit of market research. And so they hired their first fancy um, London uh, advertising agency. And the advertising agency went to uh, a bunch of their consumers and said, hey, why do you drink Guinness? And the overwhelming answer was something very simple, but it was, you know, I just feel better. Hmm. And so the, the most famous slogan, which I have to say, Diageo does not (laughs) endorse in any way at all right now. But um, the most famous slogan that ever came out of, in in my view, of Guinness's uh, famous advertising from the 1920s to the 1950s was, you know, Guinness is good good for you. Guinness is good for you. you So that's where that came from. I like them. A quick, uh, the the second beer we popped, it was was a random beer in our fridge here. Old Fred. Where is it from? We're all very curious about it. The Old Fred is is a German... I mean, Ethan's uh, writing this down on Amber tap for us. What, are, what do they call this thing? <laughs> it, it's all in German, so I don't oh, know. Oh, well, I know a little bit of German. Um, Probably not enough to read that. Yeah, so it's a German. Pass it on to Angela. Yeah. Oh, God. I mean, oh, I'm man. Not sure. I'm going to see. It's old Fred beer. Yeah, it's an old Fred beer. A German beer. Yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah. Everyone knows that it's one. It's kind of like a little caramel flavor. What style all is right, that? All right, Tolahoff. So we'll figure that out. We're going to take one more short break. We'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Radio. Check us out on heritageradionetwork.org. Become a member, heritageradionetwork.org. Matter Engineer just asked a great question, Angela. What did he say? He said, how much diacetyl beer do you have to drink to get Yeah, how much diacetyl would you essentially have to consume in order to feel that headache I was talking about? And at the end of the day, I don't know, because it depends on the person. And the other part of it, too, is that some people are what we call blind to it, uh, the diacetyl flavor and, and smell. 
Um, so I'm a little blind to it. Okay, as an example. Yeah, so like I, I have a, a huge, tough time. Yeah, like you a know, third of the it, population but, yeah. can't detect it. So I mean, that's the other hard part too. They're just like, wow, I just what about you, crap. Anthony? Can you taste? I can. I can taste it. I can. Yeah. I mean, I, and I do like it in certain styles of beer, like Czech Czech Pilsners have a Irish have red ales are supposed to have sure. light amounts of diacetyl. It's a great part of the style. A, but lot, of, a lot of British ales have you know a, a decent amount in there to, and it's part of the the profile of the beer. But like, and we had a diacetyly IPA. That's not exactly buttery. Is not something that we associate with IPA. Just as an example, it's a style that we don't necessarily associate. And American with it. style specifically, the American beer consumer, especially the one that has been weaned on the last fifteen years of craft beer growth, right? Of, of mm. just like local beer that we have in this country, um, they are attuned to a very clean yeast profile. Yes. Right. So when they start having traditional English bitters and traditional English ales. Uh, and some Irish ales that have those yeast, whether it's like your traditional ringroot strains or whatever it happens to do that produces a lot of diacetyl as a natural byproduct of the fermentation process, they actually get pretty turned off. That, right? That's about that's, that is about what your expectations are too, because I remember years ago people said, "Oh, that, that, those are ringwood beers," and a lot. Of, I think a lot of the first craft breweries were using that system or the, those yeasts. What, what, what is ringwood, anyways? When you refer to that, so ringwood is a tr- very traditional English yeast strain. Um, and there's a bunch of different versions of it. But uh, it actually came out of the brewing traditions of New England here in America. So there were a lot of breweries that were set up by um, Alan, Alan Pugsley is a big name, who um, actually my former uh, my, my first beer job in the in the beer world over 10 years ago was at Magic Hat Brewing Company um, in my hometown in Vermont. And Magic Hat uh, was set up by Alan is actually uh, using Ringwood yeast, right? So Magic Hat is famous for using that kind of yeast strain. And so... Um, it's just a very kind of traditional. Yeah, there was Ge- Geary's in Maine was set up that yep, way. Yep, exactly. So Geary's. Uh, I, w- I was told one time that yep. um, if you pour um, beers that brewed with Ringwood yeast, that it will literally machete its way through your draft system and infect the entire thing within a few weeks. Is that uh, nonsense? I, I, not, not my experience. But <laughs> could, Get a good draft that, cleaner. That could be a thing, but that's what Ringwood is. Yeah. There, there's a lot people malign it but I know that in the, in the early days of craft beer there were more people using it than not yeah yeah. so it's also our taste change too you know like maybe you like some English beers with a little diacetyl it's interesting yeah it's, it really depends on you and that's why I said before too it's flavors not necessarily off flavors that's too specific of a term I think to use because there's it's just a it's too big of a conversation yeah. So it gets back to, like, what's an eh beer? I love that, but Jeff Alworth, an eh, eh, eh beer. Because I'm like, eh, it's eh. And I was judged by how fast a, a beer moved. I figured it didn't matter what style. If people really liked the beer, they'd have more than one. I remember Garrett Olive used to say that, too, that early days of Brooklyn Brewery, they wanted you to have not just one beer, but four. I think he's got the best one-liners in the beer industry. Like, I've heard, I've heard more, like, you know, what Ga- you know what Garrett said once? I've but if you can't that. finish that pint, you know, that, that's what I found. We're talking about a lot of the newer breweries over the years. And at Jimmy's number 43, we'd, we'd have every every new brewery in New York City. And there was just certain breweries we'd put them on. It didn't matter the hype behind them or the style. And the keg just wouldn't move. Mm-hmm. And it could be an IPA. It could be a Pills or whatever. And others would just move. And I, I think to me it was the... To me, it was the quality. I couldn't. That's why I like this eh factor. You know, the Moorish factor. Well, I think a lot of. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Please, please. You know, unfortunately, a lot of beers today and a lot of you know, a lot of very popular, cool beer styles today for me don't lend themselves to that Moorish kind of quality. And they are delicious, and they are unique, and they they do taste good. Totally. But um, you know, halfway through a, a small pour, you're like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, this was interesting. 
had. This was good. It's also you. Being in the industry, I'm so used to, to not paying for beer. You know, whether I'm in my own place or at a tasting. But a lot of times I have to step back. And the same thing when you're know, doing a, a chef presentation and chefs trying to taste you on all these food. Simply like I have to step back and say, but what I actually pay for this. Mm. You know, I love getting, trying all these things. I love all these new styles. But what I actually go out and, and, and pay money for. It. So this is actually um, part, of, part of what my team does at, at Guinness is we do, uh, we work a lot of festivals. And, and beer festivals have become kind of this homogenized product, unfortunately, a little bit. But mm. there are still really good ones out there. And it's the best place, period, for consumer feedback because people are open, they're honest, they want to talk to you, they came there to talk to you. And so I see it as a huge, huge place to get consumer feedback. And there's a huge difference, I've noticed, between, oh, yeah, thanks for that beer sample. And then they walk away and, oh, yeah, where can I buy this? Right. And the difference, you can see the difference between direct difference between a correlation in Guinness sales and the, and the beers that we sell well. Right. And the consumers that say that. Right, as an example, and so this gets to the idea, and this is a converse, This is some, this is a topic that I think about constantly as a marketer. Right, is I think about um, purchasing behavior. What are the things that actually cause me, right, to buy this? Right, what is the motivation to buy this? Right, and that's the big thing. Is you're not looking for the oh, that's interesting, oh, that's nice, right? But what you are looking for is where where can I get more of this? Right, where what? How do I hit that marker? Um, another point I actually want to bring up too, in terms of our whole quality conversation, we've talked about like you know flavors or you know what's going on with their draft system, but I think the under talked about aspect of quality is carbonation. I mean, so unfortunately, you have a lot of people who are putting they just they they don't understand how their draft system was built and how to maintain proper levels of carbonation on their beer, and that's a huge part about. I mean, it's a whole ingredient in our product here is carbon dioxide. Um, and when people don't um, uh, put the right kinds of pressure even on their beers to maintain it at the right, you know, um, uh, carbonation levels, then you also are going to have that that diminishing quality in the product at the end. Um, so that's something else, too, that I think a lot of bar restaurant owners need to be very much aware of, um, have a good understanding of so that they can actually, um, you know, have proper system balance and dispense their beers properly. Also, it's not foaming over and they're not losing, you know, a bunch of beer down the drain. Do you ever have that problem, Anthony? Foamy beers, or yeah, every day. I mean, there's you know, draft systems are temperamental, and they you know Very. things things break, and you have to maintain them. Um, but it's it's a great point. I mean, it really is one that we try and kind of drill into our staff constantly about the importance of a head on beer um, for multiple reasons. Um, it's how the that's how the brewer intended it to be poured, um, and it's how it's going to just increase your enjoyment of the beer immensely. But you really have to monitor every keg. I mean, some kegs, yeah. like for in the city, um, you know, uh, transmitter has very particular levels of, of you know, what is it? Carbonation. Of CO2, CO2 per beer. Yeah and, I, yeah, and I remember having a couple of their kegs on, and Anthony, the brewer, wasn't happy with it was coming out too foamy. Well, something I'll, I'll actually like give a tidbit for anyone out there who's been maybe fussing with their draft system. Just something that's been like one of the most immaculate, wonderful pieces of information that I was given a long time ago is if you're looking at your draft system and your beer is pouring foamy, a lot of times people will automatically think that it's overcarbonated when a lot of times it's undercarbonated. And the best way to tell is when you're looking at your coupler, that that's the item that actually um, literally attaches itself to your keg. Right above that coupler is that nice piece of like vinyl tubing that's clear 
if that uh, portion right above that coupler has bubbles literally crawling up the line, it needs more pressure. It's literally carbon dioxide breaking out of solution and crawling up the line. So if you ever see that as a, as a bar restaurant owner or you know a bartender, add more pressure. That's just little tips and tricks that you can see and observe in your system that'll be like, oh, that's the answer. And I, and I think that the looking at the, the sort of the industry side of it too, um, beer professionals these, these days are people who work in the beer industry, whether you work for a supplier, distributor, retailer, doesn't matter. You're kind of required to know most of this this information, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of required, right? Because the bar has been luckily raised to the point where um, you're going to have that conversation during the day, right? You're going to go to a retailer, and if you can if you can walk in, this is something I always teach to at Guinness is if you can walk in to a retailer and you can do nothing but provide solutions for them, right? How much more valuable are you, right, as a beer professional to walk in and say, hey, you know, I noticed you have foamy beer, but it it actually the temperature feels pretty good to me. You know, can we actually take a look? And and you're not going to know exact CO2 volumes. There's a lot of factors that, that Angela just mentioned that you're going to have to kind of guesstimate to a certain extent. But knowing these things as somebody who works in beer, um, you know, knowing the whole ecosystem and how that kind of how those things play together is a great part of that quality conversation. Too. I mean, even now to this day, like I've, I've noticed, like I can I can look at a beer and look at the foam and tell you whether or not it's undercarbonated or overcarbonated in most instances. I've had, you know, beers or even coffee um, because it's on tap now um, gifted to me at places I'm like, oh, you're having some trouble there. Try this and this. And, you know, it's easy solutions most of the time. It's just providing people with that with that knowledge. This is really cool. We haven't gone this far before in that area. But going back to just styles of beer, Anthony, so for me, what is it about Guinness, you know, the nitrogen system versus the CO2? I mean, I know there's a difference, and there's different mouthfeel. Why is it, do you think, that that Guinness, that style, the nitrogen style, became so popular? And um, although it's such a small percentage of beer being poured at a bar, most people are getting a a carbonated beer. Bar. You want to talk about that a little bit? Because well, I've always been mystified. Why is the style so popular? In terms of why it originated, so I'm gonna, you know, give my perhaps con- controversial. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, controversial opinion. And on Chris, this, you can't it, jump in on this. One. It uh, it evolved from from cast conditioned ales, um, and the texture that those cast conditioned ales um, create when they're poured well. And the two part pour comes from blending of new beer and old beer. That's another controversial one that Chris will probably deny because he has to. I've got nothing to say. <laughs> well, I mean, Guinness was, to my knowledge, wasn't it Guinness, actually, that was the one who really pushed forth that whole idea of having um, nitrogenated beers, since nitrogenated beers are supposed to be essentially a draft representation of cask condition ales. Um, it was supposed to recreate, essential, I mean, unless, you know, that's that's. that's I just wanted I to hear you guys say that on the air, because I always felt that way. We said that years ago. We said... This nitrogen is a, a, a industrialized version of, of cast condition. Ales. Yeah, exactly what and it looking was for created the, the for. The way to keep it controlled, since cast conditioned ales are so individually keg-based temperament. Diageo right? agents are walking across the river of burgers. I'm to shut us down. There's a sniper. There's a sniper. The industrial version of a traditional right method. So, so, uh, Thank you, Angela and Anthony. Guinness actually invented uh, nitrogenation back in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. So, that's a piece of Guinness technology that you've seen. And, it's perfect and that you're here. It is. This is what an <laughs> ideal place for me to be sitting right yeah. now. Um, but they actually did invent that back in the 50s. And it's I'm, I'm so happy to see so many local breweries embracing that. Um, there's an amazing 
amazing nitro stout made by Rockaway Brewing Company called Black Gold, Black Gold. here in the city that um, they've I think done. they quote Beer Sessions Radio as saying it's a, it's, a, it's a good beer. I will fully endorse <laughs> that go. beer as somebody, as a, as a senior ambassador for Guinness. I will tell you that that is a fantastic beer as well, so definitely give that a try when you see it. But um, the idea of nitrogenating something really came from, uh, it stemmed from a bunch of different conversations back in the 50s, but most importantly was the idea of getting a consistent pint. It certainly could have definitely come from um, trying to replicate that kind of cask experience. Because remember, making beer, um, serving serving beer on casks, specifically serving a great pint of Guinness, it took a lot of effort and it had a very specific kind of process, which we can go into at some other amazing point. Wrap it up, Anthony. Anything else? Um, if I had a message to people about quality of beer, you know, retailers just care, understand that it's not... It's not rocket science. It's not that hard. You just gotta, you gotta just lean into it a little bit and and just do the small amount of work needed to maintain a great product. And well, you gave the us rewards a, are a uh, whole new insight, Anthony. Your, your best line of the night was, "Water will find its own level." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Anything else you want to say, Angela? So just one more time. Now you're the at Maury's Cheese. You're you're going to be bringing beer to the forefront. Oh yeah. Um, so again, manager of education over at Murray's Cheese. So I'm bat signals out, man. I'm ready. Let's let's get geeky. Um, we have constant beer and cheese pairing classes over there. But um, let's get in further. Let's figure out what else we all would like to learn about um, because I have nothing but resources there. So I'm and Chris, ready. Chris, the brew enthusiast. How can I get on your newsletter list? Because I love what you put out. Ooh, yeah. Simply, simply go. Go to the website, go to the Marine Enthusiast, and it should pop right up, and you can, uh, you can How easy. Get, Great. And get for down our untapped buddy, what, what's the last beer we just poured? So we're drinking from Schlafly, which is a great St. Louis brewery. Yes, Probably over 20 years old, I would bet, at this point. These guys oh are awesome. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, Schlafly was one of my uh, my original faves out there. For so I've got, a, I've got a lot, of, a lot of love for them. But this is a black IPA. So this is an India Pale Ale made with a lot of roasted malts. Um, it's been it's, a minute. Yeah, I was about to say. It's pretty. It's yeah. pretty damn good too. I'm having it right now. And fun fact, just because I do want to, I do want to plug this. Uh, invented in my home state of Vermont. Ooh, kind of fun. Out. Great. Well, you guys Cheers, were guys. awesome, Anthony, Pierre, and and Swift, and uh, what's the other one? It was a growler, and it's also called uh, it's Underdog. Underdog. On Stone Street. Great, great beer bars and pubs downtown. Angela style and now at Murray's Cheese. You, you, hopefully you'll be the next uh, Master Cicerone. Two months. Two months to get my results. You'll but find we'll out. See. We'll see. And Chris, you know you're great out there, brew enthusiast, representing some brands, and um, you're advanced Cicerone now too. So congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks Thank you. for joining us. Big shout out engineer Justin Kennedy. I mean, uh, producer Justin Kennedy, engineer Matt Patterson, our intern Dylan. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us on the Heritage Radio next time. We'll catch you on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.